Hello, welcome to Real Lit. This is Sam. Over there is Katie. We are two drunk ladies. One is an English professor. One is a movie obsessed, wonderful fanatic. And uh, we are here to discuss with you some classic pieces of literature and some fun B-movies that you may have never heard of. And that's great because we're here to tell them to you all while we sit and get shit faced. Mm -hmm. Let's crank it up. I can feel it already. This Kahlua is no joke. (laughs) Today, we are doing the fairy tales, but the last time I did fairy tales, I did a few for the Brothers Grimm, and today I'm going to talk about Hans Christian Andersen. Yay! We are going to hear our first few fairy tales from our good friend Hans. So since this is the first time we are talking about Hans Christian Andersen, I know I mentioned him when we talked about the Brothers Grimm. Last time, I'm going to introduce us to him and give us some information about him. And then I have a couple of uh, little summaries for some of his uh, well-known fairy tales. So the Brothers Grimm, as I covered last time, is, of course, probably the number one fairy tale origins that we get all of our fairy tales from. Hans Christian Andersen is the second. They go hand in hand. Brothers Grimm, Hans Christian Andersen. Odds are whatever fairy tale that you can think up in your head right now originally came from one of those two sources. (laughs) Yep. So Hans Christian Andersen was born in Denmark on the 2nd of April, 1805. And he wrote plays. The man wrote travelogues. He was a novelist. He was a poet. However, he is, of course, best remembered for his fairy tales. And his fairy tales, eventually his like full body of work consists of over 150 fairy tales across nine volumes, roughly. They've been translated into more than 125 languages. They have really, really become iconic in a lot of Western sort of fairy tale, kids stories, things like that. The most famous fairy tales that Hans Christian Andersen is known for absolutely would be ones like The Emperor's New Clothes, The Little Mermaid, The Nightingale, The Steadfast Tin Soldier, The Princess and the Pea, The Snow Queen, The Ugly Duckling, Thumbelina. And he has inspired, of course, a bunch of stuff from his fairy tales, ballets, plays, obviously Disney pulls from Anderson just as often as they pull from the Brothers Grimm. Mm-hmm. So Hans Christian Anderson usually went by HC and he was born in Odense, Denmark on the 2nd of April, 1805. Like I said, he was an only child. His father was also named Hans. So he was a Hans Jr. You know, probably mm-hmm. why he wanted to go by HC instead of his first name. So his father, like, considered himself and therefore his family to be, like, related to nobility. This wasn't, like, actually true, (laughs) but he thought it was and so, like, played it like it was. And so that was kind of the air that permeated the family. Hans was baptized a little over 10 days later, and he was baptized in St. Hans Church. (laughs) 
fun, crazy thing, his birth certificate was not drafted until November of 1823. So almost 20 years after he was actually born, (laughs) did they like write up his birth certificate. And according to that birth certificate, he had six godparents. which I just think is super extra. Like your backups for your backups for your backup godparents. What were you thinking was going to happen to all of these parental figures for this poor kid that you were like, you know what, just to be on the safe side, we're going to bring six of them. I mean, it was the (laughs) early 1800s. So fair, fair. People living past like 20 was an accomplishment. So you don't know someone's about to get kicked in the head by a horse someone's about to paper cut a paper cut just (laughs) fucking dilapidates you and you die from gangrene so for sure for sure uh gotta have backups to take care of your kids you were walking down the street and someone poured out their chamber pot on your head and then you uh you know died of dysentery exactly (laughs) so Anderson's father had received an elementary school education. So he was the person to introduce HC to literature, basically. And in fact, he read Anderson Arabian Nights. And that was kind of Anderson's beginning into the idea of fairy tales and sort of fantastical story weaving. His mother was named Anne-Marie Anderstatter. She was illiterate. She was a washerwoman. So his kind of like nobility and like thoughts on fairy tales and civility and courtship and chivalry and all that kind of stuff was really from his dad. When her husband died in 1816, so H.C.'s father died in 1816, and then she remarried in 1818. And after this, Anderson was sent to a local school for poverty-stricken children, basically. He received a basic education there. He had to support himself after this. And so he worked as an apprentice to a weaver. Later, he worked as an apprentice to a tailor as well. When he was 14, he moved to Copenhagen. He was looking to hit that spotlight and become a star, baby. He wanted to be an actor. So he had reportedly an amazing soprano voice before he like went through puberty. And so he was actually accepted into the Royal Danish Theater. But then right after he was accepted, his voice changed because puberty. So like his theatrical career was a little short lived there. But he met a whole bunch of great people networking that happened. And he had a lot of friends. And one of them told him while he was there, like, you know, you're more of a poet, really, than you actually are an actor anyway. And Anderson was kind of like, huh, and like took that comment very seriously and was like, okay, I guess I'm going to be a writer now. So the director of the Royal Danish Theater actually became really fond of HC. His name was Jonas Collin, and he actually paid to send Anderson to a grammar school and persuaded King Frederick VI to pay part of Anderson's education to kind of advance him in that area. So by now, Anderson has published his first story. His story is called The Ghost at Palnatoke's Grave. He's not like a stellar pupil. He's, you know, a C average, probably B, maybe on a good day. 
but he was doing it. He was doing it, doing it. And he also attended another school after that until about 1827. So he was just super educated. He says later, by the way, unfortunately, that while he was very educated and lucky in that regard, unfortunately, the years at his last school in El Sonora were some of his worst years of his life, basically. He was abused, unfortunately. He reported that he was abused. He lived at the schoolmaster's home. And so the schoolmaster himself was his abuser. This was done, of course, to improve his character, like most abuse was done to children back then. And so even outside of this really disgusting, unfortunate abuse from the people he was staying with, the faculty, you know, his teachers at the school were also really emotionally abusive to him. They, you know, discouraged him basically from all of his dreams. He's not going to amount to anything. Um, He's a shitty writer. And he became really, really depressed after going there, unfortunately. So 1829 two years after he leaves this hell hole of a school. He goes to become a little successful after he publishes a short story. His short story is called A Journey on Foot from Holman's Canal to the East Point of Amager. Not a very rolls off the tongue title. No, not at (laughs) all. (laughs) But apparently it was a good enough story that he gets pretty considerably successful from it. Basically, there's a talking cat in it. That's like the best part of the story in my opinion anyway (laughs) so after he published that he kind of makes little progress in writing and publishing for a while he receives however a small grant from the king in 1833 and so with this grant he takes it and uses it to set out essentially on first of what will be many journeys that Hans Christian Andersen takes all throughout Europe he decides he wants to go traveling so he goes near Switzerland and writes a story about a merman he goes into Italy and he writes a story there. He goes into Rome in particular in 1834, and this is actually where he kind of internalizes a lot of this experience into his first novel, which is a quote-unquote fictionalized autobiography. So he's like, this is my autobiography, except not really. This is like a fun, interesting story that could be my autobiography, but isn't. So it's a novel. It's like a self-insert fic, but just of reality. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> So his first collection of fairy tales is a collection of nine fairy tales, and it is called Fairy Tales Told for Children. It was published in a series of three installments in Copenhagen between May 1835 and April 1837. This is his obviously first sort of foray into writing fairy tales before obviously he's, you know, we've talked about it. He's published short stories. He's written poems. He works on writing some travel documents, but those haven't been published yet. And this is his first sort of foray into writing fairy tales in particular. So his first installment was published on the 8th of May in 1835. This one had The Tinderbox, Little Klaus and Big Klaus, The Princess and the Pea, and Little Ida's Flowers. So the second one was published on the 16th of December of that same year. This one contained Thumbelina, The Naughty Boy, The Traveling Companion, 
And then the third booklet contained The Little Mermaid and The Emperor's New Groove. And this was published New later. Clothes. New Clothes. Yeah, sorry. The Emperor's New Clothes. So, so sorry. So sorry. Llamas. Anytime I see the word emperor, llamas just immediately jump into my head. And <laughs> it just, it will never, ever not be like that. Thank I got you. you. The, uh, the, drunker, <laughs> the drunker I get, the less likely I am to fix that problem. And we're just going to start talking about <laughs> emperor's new groove right so. so we're lucky it happened early so this was published like i said his third one with the little mermaid and the emperor's new clothes much later it was about a year and a half at least like in april of 1837 so the little mermaid was actually anderson's fairy tale that he told that was completely his own creation it was influenced by a story called undine by delamonte fugues what a name uh, yes uh, and that story was published i think in 1811 and he kind of took a little bit of inspiration from that story but also he took a bunch of inspiration from like lore about mermaids in general and created his own fairy tale out of the little mermaid and this is the story that really just establishes anderson as an international fairy tale teller this is the one that is just kind of soars him out in that regard the emperor's new clothes the other one in the third booklet is actually based on a medieval spanish story interestingly enough when he published his first two booklets, that year and a half between publishing those and the third one is actually for a reason. So his first two booklets did not get very enthusiastic feedback from the public. They didn't really like his style. They thought that for trying to tell quote unquote fairy tales, he was not doing it right, basically. He was too informal, essentially, and they thought that there was a lot of immorality in the stories that while Anderson was writing it in this sort of almost like tongue-in-cheek kind of satirical chatty nature that is almost meant to come off you know like they're immoral but that's kind of the point it's to kind of highlight the immorality of some of the things that he's writing about that fell flat for the public from those first two books and they were just like we don't get it <laughs> basically and so they didn't like it and back in that day children's literature was educational it's supposed to be pedantic it was not supposed to amuse kids. That was not the purpose of a fairy tale. It was not like we would call a fairy tale today to bring kids joy. It was meant to teach children the things that they needed to know. And that's kind of it. In fact, if they were brought joy from it, you're doing it wrong probably because what you should be doing is scaring them, <laughs> you know, or teaching them something very important and serious. So uh, they just really did not like it and they very harshly discouraged Anderson from pursuing this type of fairy tale telling style that he wanted to do. So that's why there was this huge break because he was essentially like, eh, okay, well, I guess I suck at fairy tale telling. I won't even just bother finishing this entire installment before he eventually then did do the third one. So in 1851, he publishes in Sweden. This is his first travel log. It receives wide accolades from the public. 
And so he publishes more travelogues with the success of this. His travelogues are very much like, do you know the old ones like traveling around with Rick Steves? No. Okay. So when I was taking French in high school, (laughs) a lot of the like stuff that we watched about France were Rick Steves episodes, basically. And Anderson is very much like Rick Steves, but this was not how travelogues were usually written back then. So it was combining documentary type information, but it also was descriptive, not just of the like physical attributes of a place, but of his experiences there. And he would add, you know, like literary flair to his travelogues. He would, you know, talk about philosophy, about some of the like topics and stuff. You know, he would talk about the culture of the places. He would talk about the reason why people travel in the first place, kind of like that searching for meaning and like kind of grasping with human existential immortality and things like that. So it was a travelogue, but like for people who liked to read books. You know what I'm saying? Not people who just wanted to travel. And people just ate this up because it was new back then. That wasn't really how it was done. In the 1840s before then, briefly, Anderson, like, tried to return to the stage, but it it was not very successful. Um, So we just kind of gloss over that. One fun thing, however, I needed to mention this so that I could bring the trutherism about Hans Christian Anderson and this dude. So in June 1847, Anderson meets Charles Dickens. Anderson goes to England for his, the very first time in his life. He was invited to a party by the Countess of Blessington. He meets Charles Dickens there. So it is reported essentially that, you know, they shake hands and they walk with each other. They walk on the veranda Anderson writes in his diary, we were on the veranda and I was so happy to see and speak to England's now living writer whom I do love the most. And the two authors actually really respected each other's work and they respected each other as writers. They shared some things in common basically with the way that they wrote, like the depictions of poverty, basically, and how the lower class people often have to grapple with really hard shit that upper classes don't even know exists. And talking about how that existed, plus how it was then affected by the Industrial Revolution. And In the Victorian era, there was a growing sudden realization and then empathy and sympathy for children and the childlike innocence. So like the innocence of a child is is the purest form of the human spirit and should be cherished and protected at all costs. That was something that really rose up suddenly in the Victorian era. And they had that in common between them. So they like you know, hit it off really hard. 10 years later, Anderson goes to visit England again, and he was going primarily to see Charles Dickens again. And he wrote to Dickens' home and was like, hey, I'm going to come and visit you guys for like a month or so. Apparently, Charles's family was not happy about this. And Anderson was 
told to leave earlier than he was supposed to leave from this stay. And after that, Charles Dickens gradually tapered off all communication with Hans Christian Andersen. And H.C. was very confused about this and very kind of hurt and disappointed. He never understood why his letters went unanswered. But I think we all know why. And the only reason no one is saying it is because they don't have anything that they can particularly point to that says Charles Dickens could have been into men at one point to like, you know, point at and be like, see, here you go. Because here's the thing, which I'm going to talk about in a little while. Hans Christian Andersen was a bicon. He was a bisexual man. He was super into women and he was also super into men. And Charles Dickens probably was into men too, at least a little bit. We don't have as much evidence, quote unquote, to kind of like point to, to be like, ha ha, see, Charles Dickens clearly liked men. But it's sort of, in my opinion, when I look back, it's not suspect, like it's not sus, you know, as the kids say these days, but, <laughs> but like, there's no reason to not insinuate from some of the like stuff that happens in Dickens's life that he absolutely was not into men. And especially in this day and age, why would there be evidence that would, you know, exist or be allowed to exist of that type of stuff? Because being gay wasn't looked at as a good thing. So obviously, lots of evidence of the, you know, queerness of well-known people in history, not just in literature, but all types, all walks of life in history. There's lots of evidence that I'm sure was purposefully purposefully destroyed throughout history to hide the fact that probably many more really important iconic people in history were queer you know oh, yeah, in some way sure. shape or form and i personally happen to believe that charles dickens was probably one of them he was probably at least bisexual um For he sure. was very into women but in my opinion uh, let's just say that if evidence arose someday that was like Charles Dickens could have been into men too I would not be surprised yeah and H.C. Anderson was into men like we have definitive proof that he was at the very least biromantic if not bisexual yeah so to me like this just kind of reads really sadly as two like men who are a lot alike who you know like Charles Dickens family was kind of like hey Chuck you need to like get rid of your boy because you can't be like getting gay up in here with your like fellow writer dude like you guys are both too in the public eye for this and I'm sure that due to a lot of pressures from his family and everybody else he just ended up not being able to keep a friend not even just somebody that he could have potentially been romantically involved with but he couldn't even keep him as a friend in that regard and that's just so depressing because Charles Dickens could have used some fairy tale funness up in his depressing ass shit that's all I'm gonna say that's why it was so depressing and (laughs) if I was if I was Charles Dickens I would have said who brings home the money family Oh, right. For sure. It me. It me. Fuck y'all. Like, get the fuck out of my house. 
This is my Deal house. With my queer friends, bitches. Right. This is my house. I make the money here. I'm writing the <laughs> stories and I'm writing you out of this one. Get the fuck out. Damn, that was a line. He said that. He walked in with a mohawk one day and was like, yeah, this is who I am now. And you're just going to have to accept me. Exactly. Bitch. No, this is my house. Get out. Okay. So speaking of Anderson and his love interests, like I said, Hans Christian Anderson is a bicon. He definitely loved women. He was very into women. He often fell in love with what people refer to as kind of like quote unquote unattainable women. So he was very much the like, you know, those friends that you have where like, you never want to date the guy that is awesome and single and is clearly into you. No, you always want the guy that is already married and doesn't give a fuck about you and treats you like shit. And that's always the person that you're like, I just want to be with him so badly. Like, unfortunately, that was Anderson when it came to women. He's an <laughs> he eponine. Just, yes, for sure. He was an eponine of epic proportions let's just say that funny 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 stuff the nightingale one of his iconic fairy tales this fairy tale was written for jenny lind if you don't recognize that name you do i'll tell you where you recognize it from jenny lind is the swedish nightingale she was a singer you might have known her as the homewrecker from The Greatest Showman. That's Jenny Lind, the singer that our friend P.T. Barnum goes off with. And Hans Christian Andersen knew Jenny Lind and was madly in love with her and proposed to her at one point. She said no, not because she hated him. She was actually quite fond of him, but he was just like her bro, basically. So that's a fun fact. This is Uh, like one of those timing things in my brain that is like, it has exploded my brain. Like, like, you know, those things when you find out like the pyramids and like uh, some other shit was made at the same time in history at the same time. Yeah. This is blowing my fucking mind because when I think of like Hans Christian Andersen, I don't think of him as being relevant, alive at the same, like as P.T. Barnum, like that's blowing my fucking mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, that Jenny Lind is the Swedish Nightingale. And she's a home wrecking bitch. So (laughs) and that is whom Hans Christian Andersen wrote his fairy tale, The Nightingale, about. Uh, It was his dedication to her, basically. One other prominent significant other that Anderson had uh, was a male and it was one of his good friends actually it was like one of his like BFFs basically he didn't feel the same way but he was a really good friend anyway and was like a great ally like we stand how good of an ally he was because he was like even though I don't feel the same way about you HC like you're still my BFF and he would like let Anderson write to him and like talk to him about his love for him and talk to him about like his feelings about men in general and like how controversial they were and his mental health about all of it and like like his his struggles with everything and they were like good fucking 
friends. And in That's early excellent. Yeah, it was it was great. It's great. In early 1872, at the age of 67, Anderson unfortunately fell out of his bed and was very hurt by this fall. He never fully recovered from the injuries that resulted from that fall and was bedridden. And soon afterward, he started to show signs of liver cancer as well. He unfortunately died on the 4th of August in 1875 in a house near Copenhagen. It was the home of one of his close friends. So where his grave now is, he is buried with his BFF ally and his BFF's wife, who was also one of his close friends. Like they were like a fucking trio, like Harry, Braun, and Hermione watch out, basically. Adorable. And they all are buried in the same like plot next to each other. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. I cried. Not lying. So at the time of his death, Anderson was internationally known at this point and revered. The Danish government was paying him a stipend at that point, an annual stipend, because he was a quote unquote national treasure. And he was just so important to Denmark as well as the world by the time he died. Anderson's birthday, the 2nd of April, is celebrated as International Children's Book Day. Now, in the year 2005, Denmark declared 2005 the Anderson year because it was the bicentenary of his birth and his life and his work was celebrated in Denmark that entire year of 2005, basically. That's fucking uh, cool. Yeah, it was crazy. And in fact, there was like a huge show in Copenhagen's Park and Stadium during Anderson's year to like celebrate him and his life. And there is an annual H.C. Anderson marathon that was established in 2000 in Odense, Denmark. That is also um, part of his legacy in Denmark. So how do we know him today? You know Hans Christian Anderson, obviously because of Disney. Like, let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> Thumbelina, anybody? Little Mermaid. Well, Thumbelina uh, is not a Disney movie. Sorry. Yes. My bad. But yes. Uh, animated movies. <laughs> yes. Animated movies. Thumbelina is not Disney. Little Mermaid is, though. Frozen is actually based off of the Snow Queen, mm -hmm. which is a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale. And there is a moment in Fantasia 2000. The Tin Soldier. Yes. The Steadfast Tin the, Soldier. The Steadfast Tin Soldier is part of Fantasia 2000. And that is also Hans Christian Andersen's story. And it's also, so good. listen. He's also, if there was anybody like me and Katie who were around in that crazy time of the 90s where Shelley Duvall decided she wanted to do fairy tales in her living room or something. <laughs> uh, Shelley Duvall's fairy tale theater actually did a bunch of random fairy tales from both the Brothers Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen. Let's just say that Shelley Duvall's fairy tale theater is like my iconic view of fairy tales. Like when I think of fairy tales, I think of the Shelley Duvall fairy tale theater renditions of them in my brain. Yeah. Like I can see them in my head. So with that, that is Hans Christian Andersen and his story and how he became one of the two literally most iconic fairy tale writers slash fairy tale origins of the world. So I've got three stories for us today. 
The first one I'm going to do, I was only going to do two, but then I started with this one and I was like, whoa, this is way shorter than I thought it was going to be. So (laughs) I better like ramp this up and get a third one just in case we need it. So the first one I decided to do for us is The Princess and the Pea. This is one of the shortest, dumbest (laughs) fairy tales I've ever read in my life. No offense, she. I still love you. The Little Mermaid is a masterpiece. But this is the princess and the pea. So we got a prince, obviously. This prince is picky AF. He wants a real princess. Whatever the fuck that means, obviously. You know what I'm saying? He is just looking and looking and looking, but no princess is real enough for him you know what I'm saying? And so he just goes home and he is sad. Like, when am I ever going to find a real princess? So while he's home, a huge ass storm hits the area and they get a knock on their big ass castle door. (laughs) And the knock is so big and so demanding. The king himself (laughs) goes down to the front door I'm sorry, this would just never happen in real life. But the king goes down to the front door and answers it. And there is a princess here who claims to be a quote-unquote real princess. She has been caught in the storm. She is all sogged out. She's like, can I, like, spend the night here because I'm drenched as fuck. Uh, I just need to, like, get out of this storm, please. And the king is like, for sure, for sure. Let's her in lets everyone in the castle know the queen when she hears this is like hmm she's a real princess is she let's test some of this shit so this is the queen's test she goes into the room that the princess is going to be sleeping in she puts one single pea on the bed frame and then she puts 20 mattresses on top of it And then she puts 20 big ass quilts on top of those 20 mattresses. And then they send the princess into her room and are like, sleep tight, bye, and close the door, basically. (laughs) In the morning, they are like, all right, let's see if this bitch is a real princess or not. I'm, I'm rooting for you, son. The princess comes down. They're like, hi, sunshine, how did you sleep? And she's like, I slept like absolute shit. I don't know where you guys have your beds, but like there was something hard as fuck in my bed. I am like bruised. Like I have bruises. It was so bad. I'm telling you, I didn't sleep at all. And everyone is like, she's a fucking real ass princess. Oh my God, we found her. We found the one. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And they get married. The prince and the princess get married. And the end of this story tells us that the pea that this princess slept on is now in the museum of their principality or wherever the fuck they live. (laughs) It's now in the museum for the common folk to go and look at to, you know, adore of their wonderful hoity-toity, falutin-ass princess. Okay, so I read this story a lot. It's Um, so stupid. One of the families that I watch for, they have like a fairy tale book that's got a bunch of Hans Christian Andersen stories in it that are all written for children. Like it's not 
it's not word for word, but they're translated and edited to be for kids. And I hate reading The Princess and the Pea because it's so fucking dumb. It's so dumb. It's the the one, one, (laughs) the idea that any one person could feel a single pea under 20 mattresses and 20 quilts is fucking absurd. Like, I don't care what hoity-toity bullshit royalty you are especially not when this story takes place in the 1800s you're telling me you're telling me that some shitty ass mattress from the 1800s even stacked 20 tall you could still feel a pee get the fuck out of here this is what okay so this is what i'm saying in this day and age where there are like people who are sleeping on the street outside probably in your kingdom you know what i'm saying and the prince is like woe is me i can't find a bride that is so huge of a bitch that like if she has even a single pea under the softest bed that she could ever sleep on in her life she would complain about the pea because she is that fancy and that used to a high and rich ass life i need that woman to marry and i can't find her anywhere also, how can you not what find the- her anywhere? All the royalty the fuck? All the royalty is literally related to you because at this point in history, royalty was this incestuous. At this incestuous point, like, as how fuck. did you not know that this woman? This woman is probably your cousin, bitch. She's absolutely like- your cousin. <laughs> like, how the fuck did you not know her? It's literally like your mom's niece. You couldn't fucking like you've never met her before, really, in your whole life. You've never met this stuck-up bitch. Get the fuck out of here. It's and so, the mom, like I it's am, hard. it's hard. I am <laughs> the most, one of the most opposed people to classism. Yes, classism is fucking absurd, and it's bullshit. And this is this, this fairy it. tale is like an iconic classic and, piece. And like, track. okay, not only did they need to find the hoidiest toidiest princess to meet the needs of their hoity toity prince, but also like. This bitch of a queen had her servants pile mattresses 20 high. Yeah, like, how the fuck did they get their asses all the way up there? Like, okay. How the fuck did the princess get her ass all the way up okay. there? Mattresses, mattress technology has come a long way. And I know for a fact mattresses right now are not nearly as heavy as they were in 1990. 1000%. Now, like when we were kids. Now yeah. let's take that back another 200 years. <laughs> These mattresses would have weighed a so shit ton. Fucking much. They would have weighed so much. And you made your servants stack them up 20 high? Mm-hmm. How? And then the quilts, by the way. <laughs> How? What fucking imaginary cherry picker did your servants have to fucking load mattresses that high you know the queen was just was just she was actually innovative beyond her years because she was just thinking of the technology that was going to be necessary for the top bunks for when bunk beds were eventually invented you know what i'm saying yeah 20 mattresses high bunk beds (laughs) what a shit show like ugh the entire story is just I hate uh, the princess and the pea. <laughs> it is up and down 1000% the worst fairy tale, classist as fuck, makes no sense, low-key misogynistic, 
but we don't even need to get into it. That's yeah. the princess and the pea. We so can what's, move on. Now. What's interesting? <laughs> what's interesting actually is the version that I read to the kids. I don't know if the the true version has this, so you'll have to let me know. But the version that I read for the kids, like she comes in from the rain and is complaining. And first off, like if you're actually a princess, where are your servants? Where are your horses? Where is your guards? Like you should have a lot of people with you. It's not just you, but it's just her. So sure, why not? But then she comes in and she has dinner with the family and then her and the prince talk for hours and like hit it off in the book, in the kid version that I read. Like, Mm. does that happen in the real version? No. Okay. I'm going to tell you, listen, this, that's the princess and the pea. (laughs) All right. All right. It's one page. Got it. (laughs) For everyone who is listening, because this is a podcast and no one is watching because that's not how it works. It is technically, if I put this part on this page, it is still less than a full page of a story. (laughs) Yeah. It is the smallest story nothing happens in it except for what i told you just that's it she walks in hold on where is it goodness how wet she was water ran down her hair and her clothes in streams it flowed in through the heels of her shoes and out through the toes but she said that she was a real princess and then the queen puts shit up on her bed and then they send the princess to bed that's literally it the next paragraph is in the morning (laughs) what the fuck also what the fuck peas are you eating that are so hard that they that's what i'm saying that they didn't just squish under 20 mattresses and a hundred pound princess like and this bitch is dramatic af she's like i have bruises like i am scarred for life from laying on your bed what a fucking waste of a story hans christian anderson truly and how is it how is it so loved like it's in every fairy tale book for kids and i'm like why fucking why because you know what it is it's because it's it's one that's easy it's one that is easy to translate into children speak and it's one that is easy to embellish on to create it and make it kind of about anything you want it to be about you know what i'm saying but absolutely hans christian anderson from the mind that created the little mermaid this this is something else that you created this is just proof that all of the people that are successful as fuck can also write like shit Mm -hmm. you don't need to be idolizing anybody anybody that does great ass work out there in the arts anybody that does great ass work out there in any field of whatever it is that you do in your life they are still absolutely able to produce shit this yep. is the proof. <laughs> yep. So that's the princess and the pea. Tiniest fairy tale that's ever been written. The next one I'm going to do is the emperor's new clothes. So this story gets referenced a whole lot. It gets referenced a whole lot kind of out of context, to be perfectly honest. Like the actual story itself is way, way different than what contextually the emperor's new clothes as a reference is usually used in like it's hard for me to explain but you'll understand this more after i tell the story i think you'll pick up on it the same way i did that like when people usually make this reference they're making it in instances where it doesn't necessarily hit the same way 
that the actual story was talking about it, if that makes sense. So this is the story of the emperor's new clothes. There is this emperor, okay? This emperor is in love with fashion. He is so in love with fashion, just to put it in perspective, he has different clothes to wear for every hour of every day, their specific outfits. Everyone in his empire knows that he is all about fashion. They know he is absolutely the Tim What's-His-Face from Project Runway about fashion. He loves him. Tin Gun. There we go. So one day, some quote-unquote swindlers come to the palace. They come and they say, hey, we are the best bomb-as-fuck clothes makers that you'll ever meet in your life. We are magical. We make magical-ass clothes. We make clothes that are so amazing and they are magical that they only look invisible to people who are one of two things. The clothes look invisible to people who are either very, very stupid or they look invisible to people who are unfit for their lot in life for their station for their office for their like place in society those two things are the things that make our clothes look invisible otherwise amazing people and intelligent people can see divine beautiful clothes because we are the best clothes makers I have zero idea how this got into the palace, why anyone is listening (laughs) to this pitch, but apparently something happened to get them there. They make this pitch. Everyone in the palace, including the emperor, takes their word for that, and they're like, sold. Make me, the emperor, the best clothes that I've ever made. I want these magical ass clothes that only look invisible to either stupid people or people who don't deserve the shit that they have in their life. And these guys are like, all right, we're going to get to work. So they are like, we need the, the most expensive ass materials that you can get your hands on. I'm talking gold thread. I'm talking platinum thread. I'm talking whatever the hell type of expensive ass materials back in the day that they wanted, they demanded. And everyone in the palace is like, oh yeah, here you go. Here you go. Here's all this expensive ass material. Start making these clothes. They set up their loom, all of it, and they just start making the movements and pretend to make clothes. They're just moving their hands around in the air around an empty loom and an empty wheel. And they're like, oh, I can already see the patterns. They're just so lovely. And nothing is in their hands. They're doing nothing. They're just miming making clothes. So they're like doing this. They're doing this for like some days. The emperor sends some of his people basically to be like, I want to know how my clothes are doing. Go and check on how my clothes are doing. So the dude that he sends is like, hey, I want to see the emperor's clothes. And they're like, absolutely. Here you go. And they like splay it out. And there's nothing on their arms, obviously, because they're not making anything. 
and they're like, isn't it gorgeous? Look at the patterns. Look at the colors. I mean, just as exquisite. Like this part, this part was made with the like super expensive jade fabric that you got for me. Like, oh, it's just, uh, it's the most exquisite piece that I've ever made in my life. And the dude is like, am I fucking an idiot? I don't fucking see anything. What is happening? Oh my God, I don't see anything. He is too scared of either being stupid or being unworthy of the station that he has in life to admit that he doesn't see anything. So he pretends that he does see something. And he's like, fuck, apparently I'm either stupid or I don't deserve something. I'm just going to lie my ass off and pretend that I see something so that nobody knows that I'm an idiot or that I don't deserve wherever it is that I am in life. And he's like, oh, yeah, it, it's, oh, my God, it's gorgeous. Wow, just the, that pattern right there. I just, I just love what you did right there. That, that's just gorgeous. Wow, wow. And he doesn't see a damn fucking thing. This happens again. It happens a second time. He sends a different person the same fucking shit happens. Same scenario, same thoughts in this poor, poor person's head, same results. Eventually, the emperor himself goes and is like, all right, we're getting close to like when these things are going to be done. I want to see what the progress is. Maybe they need me for fitting. He goes in, same thing. This one dealers are like, here you are, your emperor highness of god this is the most exquisite garment i've ever made in my life the emperor doesn't see shit because there's nothing there and i need to like make an asterisk here that hans christian anderson writing this story is explicit in making the reader understand that there is nothing there that these people are swindlers that at every stage of the story, when they are making stuff and showing stuff, quote unquote, to the people, they are not showing anything. They are showing nothing. Hans Christian Andersen is not subtle about it. He is like, and then the like liars raise their hands up, even though they didn't have anything in their fucking hands. <laughs> and the people were like, oh shit, I can't see anything. It is meant for you as the reader to know that these people at every step, 1000% from beginning to end, have never been doing anything. They have been pretending to make clothes. They have never made any clothes this entire time. There is no invisible clothes. They don't exist. The emperor himself goes in, is shown these clothes, and the emperor himself obviously doesn't see anything because there's nothing there. And the emperor is petrified. He's like, holy shit, I'm not supposed to be the emperor. I, I don't deserve to be here. Either that or I'm an idiot. And both of these are just terrifying for him. And what does this mean? If I can't let people know this because then people are going to kill me right here and now to take the empire, you know, because I don't deserve to be emperor. And this proves it. So he too pretends. So you're the emperor. Just kill them. <laughs> just literally behead them. Like, but you've wasted my time. Behead them. <laughs> 
But no, they believe that the clothes are there. And all of the people that he has sent, all of his trusted servants, have told him because they themselves were also scared. So they are saying, oh, isn't it beautiful, your highness? We saw this. We told you that it was gorgeous, wasn't it? They never saw anything either, but they are in the same boat. And they're telling the emperor everyone else sees something and he doesn't. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So he is like, oh, yeah, I I do. I see it. It's glorious. So the swindlers are like, listen, these clothes are so fresh. They're so glorious. They're the best clothes we've ever made. We think you should have a procession through all of the crowds of your empire to show off your clothes. Super normal. Super chill. I don't know why this is clearly something that makes sense to suggest, but nobody bats an eye at the suggestion because everyone is like, oh, yeah, great idea. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to have a huge procession, a parade for the emperor to show off his new ass clothes just because the emperor is like 100%. Let's do it. When the clothes are finally ready, the swindlers are like, all right, emperor, here you go. Come here. We got to put the clothes on you. So the emperor's standing there. He's naked as the day he was born. They are miming putting clothes on him. And they are like, doesn't it feel beautiful? Our clothes, the part of their magic is that they're also light as air. So you don't even feel like you're wearing clothes. They're the most comfortable as well as the most gorgeous. You will never feel hindered by your clothes ever again when you wear the clothes that we make for you. And the emperor is like, of course, absolutely. Wow. Um, Just stunning. And he's naked and he has no clothes on, but they have told him that he is wearing invisible clothes that are light as air. So the emperor goes out into the procession that they have made for these clothes. All of the people have been hearing about these clothes for weeks now, and they've just been like, ah, shit, can't fucking wait to see these new clothes, because apparently all the people in the empire agree that the emperor being obsessed with fashion is just like a cool, normal thing. And they're like, all right, let's see him, let's see him, let's see him. The emperor comes out. He is obviously naked. No one can see any clothes because there are no clothes there. Everyone in the crowd is like, holy fuck, are we dumb? Do we not deserve the things that we have in life? Oh my God, oh my God, we can't, we can't say anything. So they don't comment. They just remain non-committal and quiet. Until a child looks up at the emperor as he is walking past and is like, mommy, why does the emperor not have any clothes on? (laughs) Basically. And the dad is like, oh, shit. Kids don't lie, man. Like, yeah. And kids have no station in life. They don't. They don't have any station in life. There's no station in life. A kid doesn't earn his place in society because a kid is a kid. Right. So the kid looks at the emperor and is like, he doesn't have any clothes on. He's naked. I can see his ding dong right now, basically. And the dad is like, holy fuck. Are you serious? Are you serious, son? And the son's like, yeah, that motherfucker's naked, (laughs) basically. And and so the dad is like, okay, my son says that. Okay, you don't see any clothes, right? 
like, no, I don't see any clothes. He's like, no, we don't get my son says that the emperor's fucking naked. And it spreads throughout the entire crowd, like, oh shit, that dude don't have no fucking clothes on. It's not that the clothes are invisible, it's that the motherfucker's walking in front of us buck ass naked right now. Yeah. The emperor can hear the mutterings. Yeah. Unfortunately, he's like, I'm not going to do anything because I'm in the middle of a procession. So I'm just going to finish strong, motherfucker. Uh, let's just uh, yes. perform that walk shit. That walk. <laughs> and he just own it. Oh, fucking own his, it. Ends his procession, buck ass naked, full moon shining in the full sunlight and leaves. And that's the end of the fairy tale. What a trash story. Isn't that insane? Isn't that story in motherfucking insane? I'm mad. <laughs> Why? Her, like... she, has, she has such a consternated expression. Why the fuck? Those people deserve to be killed. I mean, not really. <laughs> not by like 2020 standards. Like you lied, like go to jail or whatever. Right. But like back but yeah, in, they back in the days out- when there were kingdoms and shit, like this dude should just said off with their heads and then they're fucking dead. Like you I don't totally forgot to say that. Like finally, when they dress him, they're like, "All right, we'll be rooting for you." And then they dip, obviously, because that's what they were gonna do the whole time. They got all this expensive ass shit. They just kept all of it and then they fucking dip. Yeah. <laughs> obviously. Yeah. No, fuck those dudes. Like I would have, I would have killed them. So the emperor's new clothes is always used as someone like trying to put a front on for themselves when they are actually naked. You know what I'm saying? Like, so like the Hamilton line, you know what I'm saying? The emperor has no clothes. Yeah. And what he means by that is that, oh, Hamilton is talking all this talk, but this motherfucker is cheating on his wife. Like, he doesn't have any solid ground to be standing on right now. Yeah. Sorry, spoilers in case you haven't seen Hamilton, but like, not because it's if you also, haven't seen Hamilton at this point, like, what are you doing with your life? Go watch well, Hamilton immediately. And, al- and also, it's 200 year old history. So, like, yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. Like, okay. <laughs> Like, people use the reference to the emperor's new clothes as uh, something like a hubris on the person who is wearing the clothes. And that's not what the story was. The story was the entire society, the entire way that society was upheld and their power structure and the way that they listened to authority figures and the way that power structure was set up set this entire country up for failure because someone came in and told them this thing that put their ego on the line and their ego was much more important literally much more important because they were not wrong if they admitted you know oh i don't see anything i'm stupid or i don't you know deserve my lot in life they would have been demonized by the public they would have been demonized by their boss probably would have been at the best fired you know at the worst beheaded or whatever for like swindling the emperor when you are actually a stupid person or something you know what i'm saying so all of the servants falling in line to tell the emperor that the clothes exists when they really don't are not to blame for any of that shit 
the problem is not the swindlers. The problem is the social structure that has created this hierarchy based on ego and based on station in life. It is actually, we were just talking about the princess and the pea and how dumb and actually classist as fuck it is. This is also about class and it is critiquing the entire concept of classism that when you make something all about class, everyone is walking around naked, basically, because you're, Ego means nothing. Your ego means absolute bullshit. You need to accept reality for what it is. You cannot just say, you know, society is structured this way and the people who are more successful deserve to be where they are because they're more intelligent or because they worked harder or all of these, this crazy ass bullshit. No, society is structured based on the decisions of man and the decisions of man need to be based in reality, not in fairy tale that is perpetuated by fear that something is going to get of a blow to our ego, especially when you are someone who is not at the top of the hierarchy, because the people who are not at the top of the hierarchy, the lower down that hierarchy you get, the more and more they have to lose for admitting that they are wrong when they are actually just acknowledging truth. That's the point of the Emperor's New Clothes. And this is one of those things, like I mentioned when we were talking about H.C. Anderson earlier, that like when he first submitted his two volumes of fairy tales, he got criticized highly because everyone was like, they're immoral, you know, it's too informal, they're not pedantic, basically, they're not didactic, they don't teach kids anything. They didn't understand that H.C. Anderson was a very early satirist, basically, he was satiring the society the that he, exactly the class system that he was living in. Remember, he and Charles Dickens hit it off. Charles Dickens was also a classist. What is the word I'm looking an for? An anti-classist. He was an anti-classist. He he was criticizing classism and criticizing that like, oh, just because you're poor, you deserve to die in the streets. You know, no. just because you're poor, you deserve to go hungry or deserve to not have clothes or all of that type of shit. Yeah. It was all about those type of ideals and sort of shining a light on the extremities of what those types of ideologies would actually lead a society toward. That's what Anderson was doing. And unfortunately, his first two volumes of fairy tales were so satirical that they fell flat to the public because everyone was like, I don't get it. Like, the princess is, is a hoity-toity piece of shit. Why, why does she get rewarded by getting married at the end and that's the point the point is that the princess is a hoity-toity piece of shit not that she gets rewarded but that you're supposed to read it and you're supposed to be mad at it you're supposed to be pissed off at the princess you're supposed to be pissed off that the swindlers take advantage of the social hierarchy yeah and so make everybody look like idiots because if you buy into classism you are making yourself look like an idiot. Boom. Yeah. You're welcome. I'm not going to do the last one just because I've talked for way too fucking long. And as I've said, like I said, the last time with Brothers Grimm, there are lots and lots of fairy tales. I can revisit these fairy tales whenever I goddamn please. 
So, you know, I will absolutely bring more fairy tales, like I said, from the Brothers Grimm, as well as from Hans Christian Andersen. I'll just be peppering them in there, you know, when I feel like it. But those (laughs) are two, the shortest, most annoying one, and one of the most iconic ones that Hans Christian Andersen is known for that actually, in my opinion, gets often quoted out of context. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, That is my share for this week. You're welcome. And it was not as depressing, not, I I maintain, not as depressing as 1984 or The Catcher in the Rye. No, 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 no. Not nearly as depressing. Okay, well, here we go. <laughs> Why are you suddenly, like, nervous? What is I'm not problem? nervous. I'm kind of drunk, and I'm trying to figure out how to start oh, this. Oh, shit. There's a lot of Kahlua at the bottom of this hot chocolate, Okay. <laughs> There was a lot and I finished it off and now I'm a little tipsy. Okay. All right. So I watched the made for TV movie Geppetto. And if you don't recognize that name somehow, he is the father of one Pinocchio. Now I know you know that name because who doesn't know the story of Pinocchio? There have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different versions of it, different iterations of the books different iterations of the movie plays musicals all sorts of shit so the story of pinocchio follows a toy maker named geppetto who his one dream in life is to become a dad so he makes a wish on the wishing star and is granted his wish by one of his toy marionettes is brought to life named pinocchio and then the story of Pinocchio follows the ch- the toy child Pinocchio on his adventures in trying to become a real boy. Uh, you know, he's basically a toddler in an older child's body and doesn't know right from wrong, doesn't know anything, and is fucking up all over the place, you know. The story of Geppetto, the movie that I watched, is basically the story of Pinocchio as told from Geppetto's point of view. So we really get to see kind of the outside adult view of what's happening in this town, in Pinocchio's life, and how Geppetto reacted when all these different things went wrong in Pinocchio's life. It starts the same. Geppetto makes a wish. The blue fairy grants his wish and brings to life his prized marionette, Pinocchio. Pinocchio comes to life. Geppetto can't be happier. He's very, very excited. And this movie is a musical. So everything, all the big points in this movie are done in song. So if you don't like musicals, just ignore this one. You'll be fine. (laughs) If you like musicals, I highly recommend Geppetto. Like, I haven't seen this movie in 20 years, probably. And I forgot how good it is. Like, the music is fucking quality like i don't know who did it i didn't look up who did it because i'm dumb and drunk right now but (laughs) the music was fucking quality the songs were quality the sets were quality the cast was quality like this movie gets shit on in ratings and just gets made fun of a lot because of the people who are always wrong so yeah because the people who were in it i.e drew carey and like wayne brady also makes an appearance They used to shit on this movie continuously because of its quote-unquote poor quality on their comedy sketch show, Whose Line Is It Anyway? You know, it got made fun of a lot by the people who were in it, but in watching it now as an adult, like, that was a fucking solid movie. 
It, it was wasn't bad at, all. bad at all. It wasn't bad at all. And who knew that Drew Carey could sing? Honestly, like for fucking sure. And in fact, when you were talking about like, oh, should I watch this, this, this? Should I watch Geppetto? When you said Geppetto, me too. I'm like, I haven't fucking watched that made for TV movie since it came out, probably. Yeah. But I was like, Geppetto was drew carey in that yeah and i was questioning my sanity this entire time because i was like no way there's no fucking way that drew carey was in the thing that i remember because i remembered that it was a musical i remembered that it was made for tv and i was like no i have to be like conflating two things into one so when you were like oh yeah drew carey was definitely in it right now i was like holy shit i was right (laughs) i remembered so for some reason I don't know what it is about Drew Carey in my brain, but I always forget that he can sing. And when I was a kid, when I was growing up, I watched the Drew Carey show every day. Like it was one of my parents' favorite shows. So I would always be there watching it with them. And I loved that show. And there was an episode, like a musical episode of the Drew Carey show where he sings the theme song, Cleveland Rocks. And it's fucking fantastic, but I always forget, like, even though I love that episode, I always forget that he can sing. And then he, I know he did this musical, but it always, I just block it from my mind. And then something will pop up, you know, every, (laughs) every handful of years, something will pop up on the internet. And it's like, here's Drew Carey singing a song with somebody. And I'm like, wait a minute, Drew Carey can sing every fucking time. And I'm like, Katie, (laughs) you knew this already like you've known that he could sing since like 1997 like what the fuck please stop blocking me out i am a crucial (laughs) part of your psyche yeah my brain is just like (laughs) no drew carey singing is not a thing that you need to remember and you're gonna react this way every single time you see him sing Every time. And then you're gonna remember all these other times in his right. career that he sang. And you're gonna be like, oh yeah, I knew he sang. I literally have watched every <laughs> single one of these. There's no reason why I should forget exactly. that he sings. Exactly. Yeah, sure. Okay, so Geppetto wishes on the star and the blue fairy comes down and grants him his wish, makes his marionette doll Pinocchio into a kind of real boy. In the movie Pinocchio, the Blue Fairy tells Pinocchio that he has to prove himself worthy. He has to prove himself trustworthy and brave and giving or something like that. There's like three things he has yeah. to he has yeah, to prove. Say, there's always three because three is a magic number. But yeah. I can't remember what the other one is. Yeah, there's like three things that Pinocchio has to do to prove himself worthy of becoming a real boy. And if he does these three things, then she will grant him basically being a real boy. In this version, there's no three things. It's just like, hey, now you're a kind of real boy. If you're good enough, like if you follow the right path, basically, I'll make you a real boy. And she kind of whispers over Geppetto, who's sleeping, that, you know, if he proves himself a good father, then he will have a good son. Or if he proves himself a real father, he will have a real boy, basically and so sad yeah i mean it follows basically the same plot line as the cartoon version the disney version that we all grew up with pinocchio geppetto is dealing with pinocchio at home and because he's i don't know eight or nine geppetto is treating him like an eight or nine year old you know expecting him to clean up his toys and take care of his messes and not break things and not do this and not do that and 
know how to treat other people, like know how to keep his mouth shut, say nice things, etc. What he doesn't realize and what the main point of this entire movie is that Geppetto needs to learn or needs to understand that Pinocchio is a toddler, essentially. He's a brand new kid, a brand new person. And the job of a father is to teach him all of these things. Like kids don't just magically show up and know not to talk back to people, not to get in fights, not to break things. They know what you learn them. Your parenting is what makes them who they are. Yeah. Yeah. So like if you just picked up a toddler, like if kids were just born at three or four, you know, able to walk, able to talk, able to go to the bathroom by themselves but didn't know anything else, like you would have to spend a lot of time teaching them, okay, the difference between right and wrong, you know, the difference between good and bad, all of those different things. And Geppetto just was expecting his eight or nine-year-old kid to already know all these things. And so when Pinocchio doesn't know these things, Geppetto gets really frustrated with him And over the course of a couple of days, gets really angry with him. He starts to realize why all the rest of the parents are so angry at their kids and like grumpy at their kids all the time because he's also experiencing like he just got thrown into the nitty gritty of parenthood, basically. Right. So Geppetto has to go on this adventure to kind of learn how to be a good parent to Pinocchio. After getting really mad at Pinocchio one night, he decides, okay, well, tomorrow you're going to school. And he tells Pinocchio when he sends him to school, okay, you need to just do what the other kids do. Like go to school and do what the other kids do. That You'll figure it out from there. Just follow what the other kids are doing and you'll figure it out. So he gets to school and he's there for a little while. And Geppetto is like, finally, I get to go to bed. I get to have some sleep. Like <laughs> welcome to parenting, right? Right. And then he's like asleep in his shop and two kids come barging in and they're like, Geppetto, Geppetto, you have to come to the school. Like there's something wrong with the school. There's something wrong with Pinocchio. Like come to the school. So they run to the school and they find Pinocchio in the middle of a fucking fist fight. Oh shit. With a baby Anton Yelkin. (gasps) Anton Yelkin? Yeah. My heart just died. Oh my God. Yeah, I'm so he's cry. so he's in a fight, and Geppetto shows up and breaks apart the fight. And the teacher, Signora Giovanni, played by the great Anna Gasteyer, is like, "No, you need to take your kid home. Like he's acting crazy." And Geppetto's like, "No, no, 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 no. It's fine. He'll be okay. Like I can leave him here. He'll be. I promise he won't do it again." And it comes out that the reason that they were fighting is because Pinocchio was copying Anton Yelkin's character word for word. Like he was just mimicking him because Pinocchio didn't understand when Geppetto said copying, he meant act like them, not repeat everything that they said. But Pinocchio, because he's like a toddler, essentially, (laughs) is is literally repeating every single word that this other kid has said. So the other kid got annoyed and they just started a fight. So Geppetto is forced to take Pinocchio home and on their way home, they run into Stromboli who is handing out flyers for his puppet show and trying to get people to come see. And he sees that Pinocchio is part wood, like a boy made of wood, essentially a marionette with no strings. And is like, I want you in my show. You need to come, blah, 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 blah. 
And Geppetto's like, no, he doesn't. He's in trouble. We're going home. Like, we've got things to take care of. Who the Bye. fuck are you? We just walked right by you in the street. Yeah. Mean, like, not. Yeah. Uh, fun fact. The Stromboli is played by Brent Spiner, who, if you don't recognize that name, it's Data from Star Trek. Ah, uh, yeah. From the next generation. So <laughs> there's a lot of Star Trek people in this movie, as it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> So Stromboli's like, God damn, I need I'm so to get- sorry. It's okay. I'm so sorry. I'm just I'm just picturing <laughs> the cast of Whose Line Is It Anyway and the cast of Star Trek Next Generation, like in some random green room or something in Universal Studios, <laughs> being like Man, you know what I always thought about Pinocchio? I was always like, man, what is his dad thinking about right now? What is his dad thinking about like when he was like doing all this crazy shit? And they were like, you know what? And he, you know, like <laughs> one of them is like smoking a joint and he's like, we should totally like, we should make, make that movie musical, <laughs> but like from Geppetto's point of view. And Another one is like, we totally should, though. Like, we should. Like, I got them. I'll put that money down right fucking now. And they all just, like, conspired to create this made-for-TV movie. Yeah. I'm sorry. Anyway. It's, it's fine. Uh, So they get back to the workshop, and Geppetto is really angry with Pinocchio. Like, you couldn't even stay in school for one day. Like, you couldn't even figure it out. Like, I'm so mad. You know, you're stuck here, you're, go to your room, blah, blah, blah. You want to cry about it, go to your room. So he sends him upstairs to his room. Pinocchio goes up there and then breaks a toy, like goes to pick up a toy or something and it breaks. And Geppetto gets even madder at him and yells at him. And Pinocchio is like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And his nose grows, of course, because he did do it. And they get in an argument and his nose continues to grow because he tells like three different lies in this argument. And Geppetto's just like, you know what? I can't handle this right now. Stay up in your room. Just sit on this bed. Stay in your room. I'll come get you later when I feel like it's been enough time. And then he storms out of the house and he's like muttering under his breath. Like there's something wrong. Like why is Pinocchio so fucked up? Basically, what's wrong with this kid? Why can't he just listen? Blah, 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 blah. Let me count the why is Pinocchio the child who grew into existence from a wish on a shooting star and is a consciousness inside my wooden marionette child doll. What is wrong with this kid? Like, yeah. what could possibly be wrong? Yeah, basically. So Geppetto stomps off and he's gone for a long time. Like he walks out of the little town that they're in and like into the, I guess the outskirts. They're like in this area where the path goes there's like a little bridge and stuff and he sits down on this bench and he's begging for the blue fairy to come and talk to him like i need to talk to you like something is wrong i we need to talk they do this whole song and dance about magic and he's basically telling her like when i asked for a son i expected you know a son a kid who wanted to be a toy maker who was going to be polite and respectful and all of these different things. And the blue fairy's just like, no, you asked for a son. Now you have a son fucking now it's your job. Like you're welcome. Yeah. Like, like adults, <laughs> like adults are not just born adults. Like how did you become 
the wise, intelligent, right. kind person that you are. Like your parents instilled that in you. So get to fucking parenting, basically. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you also, who knew Julia Louis Dreyfus could sing? Because I didn't. Damn. <laughs> she was great as the Blue Fairy. So basically, Geppetto is let down by the Blue Fairy because there's nothing that she can do about it. Like basically, she just tells him, You got to step it the fuck up as a dad. And he still doesn't get it. He's still like, God damn it, Pinocchio, like, you got to figure it out. So he goes back into the village, back to his house, and he's ready to, like, sit down and have a conversation with Pinocchio. And he goes upstairs and he finds a letter on the bed written from Pinocchio. And he's like, hey, dad, Mr. Stromboli came by and he wanted me to be in his puppet show. And since you don't want me here, like you told me you didn't want me here or didn't want me to be that way, then I went with Stromboli and I went and joined the puppet show, basically. And Geppetto's like, what the fuck? Like, I didn't mean all that. (laughs) (laughs) You were reading you were reading a lot in between the lines there, child. No, no, he he did yell at him like, oh, no, for sure. Like all crazy and. But, but the kid was like, nah, I'm out. I'm going to the puppet show. Right. So Geppetto goes to see Stromboli's puppet show and he watches Pinocchio sing the song I've Got No Strings because let me remind oh, you, this is, this is a made-for-TV movie produced by Disney to air on what used to be called A Wonderful World of Disney. Now, this was a program that would happen every week on like Saturday or Sunday night. Mm-hmm. and yeah it was a they, weekend thing it was a weekend thing it was prime time they would show a movie that disney had made and they would show it in those like two hours or whatever so this was one of those films so of course they get to use the songs Their from the original songs. pinocchio yeah. yeah so pinocchio is up there he's singing i've got no strings geppetto is watching him like literally he's at the thing and sees him sing i've got no strings then that song ends the show ends Pinocchio is like taken to the back and then it cuts to Stromboli who is counting his money just like in Pinocchio the movie he's counting his money and Pinocchio is trapped in a cage he's like locked away in a little cage Mm -hmm. Geppetto comes back to talk to Stromboli and is like where is Pinocchio I want Pinocchio I want my son like give me back Pinocchio And Stromboli, who has since pushed the cage away and covered it and kind of hidden it away, is like, oh, no, Pinocchio left. You know, this was only a one night thing. You know, he he said he had to go home. He had to do this and that and that. And he was going to go and he's going to meet you at home or whatever. Or no, he doesn't say he's going to meet him home. He's going to go to some other town, some other town. He's on his way. He's he's on his way to, to some nearby town. Yeah. So Geppetto takes Stromboli at his word and starts heading towards that other town. Then Stromboli goes to check the box where Pinocchio is supposed to be and Pinocchio is not in it. And he looks up and now Pinocchio is on a horse-drawn carriage on his way to Pleasure Island. So, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So if you remember from the movie Pinocchio. Hard left there from from some like Disney feelings. Well, well, no, it's it's the same. If you remember from the movie Pinocchio, he goes to Pleasure Island because he doesn't want to be part of Stromboli's garbage anymore. Yeah. And Pleasure Island is a place where all the crazy boys go, basically where the lost boys go. 
mm-hmm. like the kids who can't be tamed kids who don't want to follow the rules and it's basically this giant theme park full of rides there's performers there's like pool and okay. i was thinking like treasure island like las vegas no 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 no. Like, no it's like a it's like a big I carnival like, oh jesus christ like we're oh. about to get into territory that i don't think disney no pleasure really, really pleasure. wanted <laughs> back no then. Pleasure Island with a piece. It's a big like carnival, basically. That the my kids... heart kind of stopped for a second. <laughs> I was like, I don't remember this part of that fucking. No, musical. not not Ti and Slutty Pirates. Just just Pleasure Island, where the kids get to do whatever the fuck they want. So there's alcohol there. The kids can drink. There's cigars there. They can smoke. There's you know whatever basically they want to do. They get to just fuck around. So that's where Pinocchio heads. Geppetto is headed towards this village that Stromboli has sent him towards, right? And along the way, the blue fairy just shows up and she's trying to tell him like, hey, did you figure it out yet? Like, are you going to be a better parent? Are are you going to do this? And still, Geppetto doesn't get it. He's like, I don't want to talk to you. My kid has been bad. I need to go fucking find him. Like, I don't want to hear it. It's not my fault that this happened. Like, this this is Pinocchio. If you had just done your job right the first time and given me a kid that was already done, didn't need any parenting, like, then I could be the perfect parent. <laughs> Old man yells at clouds, me. Exactly. <laughs> so Geppetto is on his way. He's already confronted the Blue Fairy again about just how garbage her choice of making Pinocchio a toddler was. And he meets this character called the Magician. Now, he is like a wandering showman, I guess it would be. He Hmm. sets up his little spot just like along the road and does a little show for whoever wants to stop and see it. But he's not a very good one. So as Geppetto rolls up on this guy, there's like five or six people that are leaving and just commenting about what a garbage show that was. (laughs) So Geppetto rolls up on this guy and he's hanging from a tree, like wrapped up like David Blaine status, <laughs> like, Houdini, like Houdini, like he was trying to do some like I can get out of Shit. these ropes kind of deal. Right. And he clearly can't because he's been just hanging there forever. Right. So Geppetto cuts him down and they have this conversation about how he's not any good at magic And Geppetto notices that he makes really fine crafted toys like that he uses in his show. And Wayne Brady, the magician, is like, I wanted to be a toy maker, but I can't because my dad, who is also a magician, wanted me to follow in his footsteps and be a magician. And Wayne Brady's, you know, peppering on the like, I was pressured so much by my parents. I had to go into the profession that my dad wanted me to go on, just like Geppetto is pressuring Pinocchio into becoming a toy maker. Right. It makes Geppetto realize, okay, well, maybe Pinocchio can do whatever he wants. Like, I have to let that go. So he doesn't right. want to be a toy maker. Oh, well. He's going to have his own personality. He's going to have his own desires and wants. going to be a person. Yeah. So Geppetto is basically, okay, well, he tells Wayne Brady, you should do what you want to do, but I've got to go. I've got to go find my son. And Geppetto leaves and then the blue fairy pops up and Wayne Brady asks, how did I do? So he was put up basically by the blue fairy to kind of push Geppetto into knowing that Pinocchio can be whoever he wants to be, basically. Right. So on his way to find Pinocchio, he ends up in another town, which is where Stromboli says that Pinocchio is. In this town, 
Everyone is perfect. It is idyllic. All of the people are finely dressed. They're happy. They're singing. All the kids are finely dressed, happy and singing. And Geppetto gets into this town and he's like, have you seen a lost boy? Have you seen a lost boy? And all of the kids are confused because their world is so perfect. Like right. no one Who, would ever, what no kid one would, would ever be lost. lost. Yeah. Yeah. And the kids are, you know, we're getting all of these little snippets of these kids' lives. Like she, this girl's like jumping rope. She's like, oh, mom, I'm going to go home real quick and I'm going to change my clothes because I don't want to ruin this beautiful dress that you made me. And another kid is like, oh, mom, did you see my bed? I made it so perfectly. Or, you know, they're just hamming it up basically about all of these like chores and things that they've done without being prompted and how perfect they are. Right. Uh, there, there's a kid in the square who's playing violin just, because he plays the violin and he's actually playing when you wish upon a star it's fucking cute oh but then geppetto's asking these parents like have you seen this lost boy like my boy is missing have you seen this lost boy and all the parents are like you need to go see the doctor and they send him to this guy called what's let me i have to look at his name because it's spelled weird and i'm gonna fuck it up <laughs> if, I, if i'm not reading it Professor Buwan Ragazzo. Buwan Ragazzo. That's his name. Wow. So Professor Buwan Ragazzo is this inventor-ish guy that lives in this town, this idyllic town. And when Geppetto finally meets him, he's taken there with another couple who were already planning on going to see the doctor. And we find out that the professor has actually created a machine that creates these idyllic children. So he sings a whole song and dance where he creates this child for this other couple. And he's like going through this checklist. Okay, well, what color hair do you want? What color eyes do you want? What temperament do you want? And all these things. And then he goes up and he inputs it into his machine and it spits out a little kid. They're like, I don't know, eight, I would guess. All the kids, all the kids are around like older elementary school age because they all have to be able to sing and dance and do they're all dancer like theater kids not little toddlers so this couple gets their kid and then geppetto's asking the doctor have you seen my kid i'm looking for my son pinocchio blah 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 and the doctor's like oh well i can make i can make you a pinocchio and he spits out a pinocchio kid and he's like no that kid's not this and he spits out another one and he spits out another one he makes like five different kids for Geppetto and Geppetto's like this is not what I mean I'm looking for my son son. the whole town goes in and sings this whole song about the perfect kids and all of these different things and Geppetto's like okay stop I need to get the fuck out of here and he just leaves (laughs) Geppetto's like this town's fucking weird I had a bounce I had an appointment. My Uber's here. (laughs) Yeah, I thought I wanted a perfect kid until I happened upon a city of perfect kids. And now this is trash and I want just my son. Like, I don't care about his imperfections. So there's his second lesson learned or third lesson, I guess, because he learned from Stromboli that he shouldn't just wish that his kid was gone. (laughs) Right. So he leaves and the Blue Fairy shows up again. And he's like, you know what, Blue Fairy? I fucking can't right now. Like, I just went through a hellish nightmare of this fucking perfect town. I miss my son. I'm trying to find this. I'm trying to find that. And she's like, I know, but you're going the wrong way. Like, you need to go this way because Pinocchio is at Pleasure Island, basically. She is just, you need to go to Pleasure Island. That's where he's at. Yeah. 
So he shows up at Pleasure Island where, of course, no adults are allowed to be. This is only for kids and the, I guess, adults that kind of work Pleasure Island. There's like older teens. I wouldn't necessarily Mm. say that they're adults. But if you've seen the cartoon movie Pinocchio, it's done by the stagecoach guy. And he's like an old man. And he just does Mm. this whole thing. So Geppetto rolls up and he's kind of staying in the shadows, trying not to be seen because he knows that adults are not allowed. And Stromboli shows up because he wants to get his prized puppet back, Pinocchio, so that he can make all the money at all of his shows. He makes several attempts to grab Pinocchio and all the rest of the boys are like, Stromboli, the fuck? Get out of here. You're One, you're an adult. You're not allowed to be here. Two, Pinocchio clearly doesn't want to be with you. Get the fuck out. Get your bitch-ass old man ass out of here. Yeah, so Stromboli gets thrown out of Pleasure Island. While Geppetto is like hiding in the shadows at Pleasure Island, trying not to be seen and get caught, he goes into this door marked Do Not Enter and finds out that they are turning all the boys into donkeys. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. He overhears one of the people who work there basically say that if little boys want to act like jackasses, then they might as well turn into jackasses themselves. So now Geppetto knows what's going to happen. Then he goes and confronts Pinocchio and try to explain to Pinocchio like, hey, I want you like... I'm sorry for everything that I said. I'm sorry for everything I've done. I want you to come home. Like, you know, you can be whoever you want to be as long as you be my son. Like, that's all I care about. And Pinocchio's like, nah, dad, like I'm having fun at Pleasure Island with all these hoodlums. Like, I want to ride on this roller coaster. So Pinocchio gets on the roller coaster and Geppetto like breaks through the crowd of boys and jumps on the roller coaster in the car behind Pinocchio. As Pinocchio like goes through the like door that hides the roller coaster from the front of the park, I guess, the front of the carnival, he starts to turn into a donkey and he is confused as fuck. Like what the shit is happening to me? So Geppetto gets back there behind the door and the ride just stops. Like it's literally just a like go around this loop and then you go through the little doorway and then you're basically at the donkey stables. Right. (laughs) And... Geppetto rolls up in time to see Pinocchio and the other boys that were in his car get pushed onto a boat where they're going to be taken off to do whatever, like to be donkey island or something to be donkeys, basically to to just work. And Geppetto's like, oh, no, you don't. And he gets in a rowboat and he follows them. Now, this part is all done, like, rather than doing it on stage and trying to find a way to do this, like, boat and giant ship full of donkeys, like, thing on stage or whatever for this musical, they did it in a storybook way because, like, a lot of Disney fairy tale stories, it starts with a book, like, at the beginning, and they open up a big, like, right, 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 like right. animated book. And they start telling you the story. Now, in this story, for this particular part, they just flip to that part in the book and they tell the the water part, basically, in this book because it's just easier. Got it. So Geppetto jumps in a boat. He follows him. Then Geppetto's boat gets swallowed up by a whale. And ah, Pinocchio sees this from his boat because he's watching his dad follow him. And he's like, I have to save my dad. So he jumps in the water to try and go find what I know as Monstro, but they never name him in this specific movie. But we know him as Monstro the Whale from the Pinocchio movie. The thing that 
terrorized me every time I went to Disneyland <laughs> when I was a child. Oh, I love yeah. that God. thing. Oh, that's so <laughs> um, so Pinocchio jumps in the water after him. And the next scene in the movie is Geppetto on the inside of the whale. So he's in the belly of the whale and he's just lamenting about how he failed and how he tried everything he could, you know, to get Pinocchio back. And he's begging the blue fairy, if Pinocchio's gone, then just get rid of me. Like, I, you know, this is whatever. And then... It's depressing as fuck. It is. And then Pinocchio gets swallowed by Monstro and ends up in the belly of the whale with Geppetto. And Geppetto goes over to him and is confused because he's not a donkey anymore. And, you know, how did you get here? What happened? And Pinocchio explains to him, well, as soon as I jumped in the water to save you, the donkey part just washed away and I was back to being a wooden boy. Yay. So now they're both in the belly of the whale and they're trying to figure out how to get out. And they know that the only time that the whale opens his mouth is to eat something. So they come up with the idea, okay, well, I see his spout, his glot, no, his uh, epiglottis. They see the whale's epiglottis and they're like, okay, well, let's grab onto that and that'll make him cough or open his mouth and choke. Oh, 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 I got you. And he'll spit us out. So Geppetto puts Pinocchio on his shoulders and he's still too short to reach. And Pinocchio comes up with the idea, hey, dad, ask me a question, any question, just go. Geppetto starts asking him questions and Pinocchio tells obvious lies. Like, who's the smartest person you know? And he's like, uh, Stromboli or whatever the fuck. And his nose grows and grows and grows until it's long enough (coughs) to poke at Monstro's epiglottis and get him to spit them out. So they get spit out, they make it to shore, they're soaked, and then they walk back to town. And they're so happy to be together, you know, just to be alive, basically, that none of the rest of it matters. Everything that happened in the past is basically, like, it's only made them stronger as father and son. Right. So they get home, and Stromboli is in their shop. And Stromboli's like, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. Pinocchio's mine. He signed a contract. And Geppetto's like, you can have my house. You can have my shop. You can have all the toys. I don't care. You can have anything here that you want except for Pinocchio. And Stromboli's like, nah, dude. All I want is that puppet. I don't care about any of the rest of it. All I want is your little wooden boy. And Geppetto's like, well, that just ain't fucking happening. So they go out to the street and they're arguing back and forth about it and stromboli grabs pinocchio and is like this is my property and starts to walk away and geppetto is heartbroken and cries out to the blue fairy i'm asking you with all of my heart blue fairy if pinocchio is a wooden boy let me be a wooden man so then stromboli can take both of us and we will be together it doesn't matter what happens to me as long as i'm together with him And the blue fairy hears his wish and she shows up and she starts picking on Stromboli and she says, okay. And she waves her magic wand and she turns Pinocchio into a real boy uh, rather than turning Geppetto into a wooden man. And now Stromboli has no interest in him because it doesn't benefit his show. Now Pinocchio is a real little boy and him and Geppetto live happily ever after the end. 
Yay. Now, this story is fucking great, and it does not deserve the hate that Drew Carey and Wayne Brady or whoever, like, it does not deserve the hate that they gave it because, <laughs> like, looking back on it, it was really good. For a made-for-TV movie, I mean, I remember it fondly, and, like, I'm not a kid who, like, remembers things nostalgically without like remembering the quality of it because you and I both were like that and especially me I was a performer kid yeah so like I always was critical of that type of stuff and like if I didn't think something was good like I would never like talk about the like criticisms I would never try and gloss over I should say like the criticisms or like the the downfalls of certain performance based stuff because that was something that I was interested in that I was super involved in and I never remember Geppetto as being and like and granted I couldn't remember it super clearly yeah but my vague recollection of it I never remembered being discontented with any of it performance wise yeah story wise anything like that when i was reading up on it a lot of the criticisms that this movie got was on the poor quality of the film and i honestly don't see it because okay if this was a a regular movie i guess it would i would say that it had poor quality but because this movie is a musical and designed and set up like a musical like the big elaborate scenes the big elaborate musical scenes are all done you know in this town square and everyone's singing and dancing like it looked really well done and i watched some shitty musicals like i have watched some shitty things done on clearly like that's clearly a soundstage you clearly just finished painting that fake wood floor (laughs) like yesterday like it looked really well it looked like it could have been italy like it's supposed to be like it was beautiful so i don't understand the criticisms i think this one was really well done and when i think of this movie i think of it in the same vein as the rogers and hammerstein cinderella that they did with uh brandy and whitney houston because Like the cat Drew Carey is of course not on the same level of singing as Whitney Houston or Brandy. No one is saying that. (laughs) But it is just as solid. Like it tells it tells the story. The music is really well done. Like the dancing produced well. Yeah, for sure. It's really good. Now I will say there was one goof that while I was watching it, I noticed and I was like, dude, how the fuck did you miss that? (laughs) So there is a song when they get to Pleasure Island that the person who runs Pleasure Island, who is actually Usher, (laughs) Usher is singing this song. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm serious. (laughs) Usher. That's amazing. Yeah. So he's like singing this song with all of his like other older teen boys who are like in charge or whatever and they're backing him up and they're dancing like on tables and junk and there's a shot and i don't know why they chose this shot but there's this shot taken from the ground and ushers like on a table like on a tall table but they're like the camera is looking up at him on this tall table and Mm -hmm. in the far background you can see the rigging like the ceiling rigging from the soundstage, like the squares, the metal squares that they hold all the lights and shit on. I'm like, why Cute. the fuck? Yeah. Why would you choose yeah. this shot? 
Right. Why did you right, why right. did you look all the way up at how the sky? Did this, how did this shot get past post prod? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That that was the only time where I was like, mm, that was a little messy, but everything else looked really good and it looked just like a musical should look. Right. And I'm honestly shocked because I think the music is so good and this musical has such potential. I'm actually shocked that I haven't seen like theater companies do this show. They produce it reproduce it i mean you should look at disney because disney if disney has the rights to it disney would be uh anyone who is interested in it would have to go to disney and if they could make potential money off of it they would probably well that's what that's what i'm saying like disney has made musicals and they have different versions like there's a little mermaid and a little mermaid jr that you can mm-hmm. buy the rights to to reproduce on stage or whatever. But I've never seen, at least not around here, anyone ever perform that's probably Shadow. That's probably either due to Disney has never released the rights or yeah. no one has ever asked for the rights. Well, I'm interested it. because this show was fucking great. <laughs> it Consider was really good. Katie Allen is absolutely asking the Disney company to give her the production rights for Geppetto. Yes. She'll put it on. I will. I will figure it out. I already have the perfect (laughs) guy in mind for Geppetto. I have a friend who would be perfect to play Geppetto. Let's let's do it. (laughs) Let's go. It'd be so good. That's awesome. Okay. So there are a handful of callbacks to the original or not the original, I guess, because it's a story. It's a book. But the original to the, Disney movie. To the Disney movie from uh, 1940. So like I said, they used the I've Got No Strings in Stromboli show. Pinocchio sings that. They use When You Wish Upon a Star a couple of times. So it plays towards the beginning of the movie. It's just like this little background line. Uh, When he gets to that idyllic town, the kid is playing it on violin. Um, Mm -hmm. It plays in like the closing scene. There's like, it plays again in the background. They never full out like play all of When You Wish Upon a Star because that has become the song of Disney. Iconic Disney song. That is the song. When you think about Disneyland, when you think about anything Disney, you think think of the- Yes, that's exactly what you think about. So they didn't put the whole thing in, but there are little bits and pieces of it that you can hear throughout the movie. Geppetto has a cat named Figaro and it's fucking adorable. And then in that idyllic town, when Geppetto goes and meets the professor, the Burangazo, the professor says that he's going to make him a new kid faster than you can say Jiminy Cricket. Nice. There was never a character of Jiminy Cricket in the story because how would you fucking portray a tiny cricket conscience? Quite hard. Quite hard. For sure. (laughs) But they do like drop his name. This movie has four different actors from the Star Trek franchise. So incredible. Rene Auberginois, sure, is from. Auberginois, yeah. Yeah, he's from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Brent Spiner, of course, is Data from Next Generation. Scarlett Palmers from Star Trek Voyager was in it. And of course, the late Anton Yelkin from the Star Trek movies by J.J. Abrams. So I love Anton Yelkin so much. Me too. The fact that he has departed us. If you didn't know, now you know, unfortunately. And I'm so sorry that we are the ones to bring you the sad news that he has departed from us. In like the most heartbreaking way that has ever existed too. 
it's so tragic. He was an amazing person. The world is worse off without him, but he left incredible legacies behind him with everything he did. And with all of the stuff that we did get from him, you've got to cherish it that much more. And it just makes you realize that when you are finally wherever it is that Anton is, you'll get to be watching him do 80 gazillion more amazing things. Yeah. Wherever that is, than yeah. you would ever have been able to see here in this life. And that is something to look forward to for yeah. sure. He's fucking awesome. And then I did want to mention, I started watching this movie and because I haven't seen it in so long and don't real didn't really remember anything about it, I went in not expecting much. Yeah. But this opening sequence, I don't know what the exact name of the song is called, but it starts with the kids of the town talking about toys. So Geppetto's opening his shop for like the first time in the spring. He's been working all winter and he's opening his toy shop for the first time in the spring. And all the kids in the town are excited and rushing over to his shop about toys and how, what toys they want and why they want toys and all these things. And it's fucking great. And then the parents walk in, like they're being pulled by their kids basically. And the parents are telling, they sing a whole verse telling their kids, no, you can't have that. No, you can't have that. We already have something like this. No, you can't have that. That's too expensive. So the kids sing their first verse all by themselves. And it's amazing. The parents sing a little bit of their no verse. And then they double on top of each other. So the kids start their verse about toys again. And the parents jump in on top. And they're going back and forth kind of saying no. And singing in you. But singing at the same time. And then... Geppetto it cuts to Geppetto and he sings this like soliloquy about parents and how sad he is that all of these parents in his town have kids that they don't deserve basically like they don't know what they have they're treating their kids Mm. like crap like if I had a kid I wouldn't be that way all I've ever wanted is a child and you guys have it basically and I don't but you treat your kids like shit because they're all telling their kids no don't do this you can't have it so then he sings his soliloquy and then the song when it ends it's all three parts layered on top of each other in this incredible literally incredible feat of musical talent like the fact that drew carey who is (laughs) for for all intents and purposes not a singer could keep up and handle his own while the whole rest of the chorus is singing their like staggered parts about toys and no it's fucking incredible it's so good i'm gonna need you specifically well listeners go do this but sam specifically (laughs) get on youtube and just look up the opening like sequence for geppetto it is so fucking good okay last bit i'm gonna go over the cast because the cast is intense um so of course geppetto is played by drew carey which who would have expected that ever but it was really fucking good the Blue Fairy is right. played by Julia Louis Dreyfus. Stromboli is played by Brett Spiner. Signora Giovanni, who is the teacher, is played by Anna Gasteyer. The ringleader of Pleasure Island is played by Usher. The magician, who Amazing. Geppetto meets along the road, is played by Wayne Brady. The boy that Pinocchio fights at school is played by Anton Yelkin. <laughs> and the kid that goes and gets Geppetto 
when Pinocchio is fighting at school is the little brother from stepsister from Planet Weird. Okay, interesting. So somehow, not on purpose, all yeah, of these- Yeah, we, we have keep connected like, <laughs> our episode. This is like the third time that's happened in a row. <laughs> in a row, like I keep connecting them and this is not on purpose, I promise you. The stars are aligning. <laughs> They're like- you're doing something right. This show, this show called Real Lit. It's because I doing it. It's because I keep picking Disney stuff, and Disney just keeps using the same <laughs> fucking kids. Right, right, absolutely. It's it's actually highlighting just like the whole yeah. monopolization. Of oh yeah, it's the same <laughs> crop. It's the same crop of like a hundred kids that Disney's pulling from that live in the LA area that sing and dance and do all of that. They're just like, Oh, we're making another made for TV movie. We need you and 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 you. you. Yeah, exactly. And that was Geppetto. (laughs) (laughs) It was fantastic. Uh, I highly recommend it. It was really good. Like I love, you know what, if you've listened to the show, if you've listened to any of Allentown presents, you know that I love musicals because I'll just go off and talk about them for days. This was a fucking quality musical. Like, go check it out. So I actually think that, like, the fact that you chose Geppetto for this episode to pair with my Anderson story is, like, I think it works really well, too, because I've always thought of Pinocchio as, honestly another almost like not necessarily like a underlying plot but almost even like a b plot of pinocchio is the like strange feeling of classism in the area that they lived in you know like the fact that this old man just really wanted a son he gets a son but because he is you know older and because he you know doesn't have a wife and because he is just a simple lowly toy maker and is not rich and all of this stuff he can't give his son you know the crazy good stuff that other kids get and so when kids who are poor who don't behave get punished and all of that stuff they do get sent to places essentially that are like boarding schools that are essentially slave you know, labor reformatory schools. Right. No, for sure. And those reformatory schools would, you know, pump out, they would get children and they would pump them back out as young adults that were now worse than they were when they came in there because the conditions and the culture within the schools were often very horrible and very toxic and it would just perpetuate a classist you know generation of workers who could do huge amounts of physical labor only because they had to only because they slaved away and were abused for years and years and years of their lives it's funny that in Pinocchio, they make the kids donkeys because the mules, you know, there's a reason that we say when somebody is taking on too much or trying to like carry more than they can actually carry, we call them a pack mule because mules can actually carry a lot of stuff. Mules are built for their strength, for their brute strength and endurance not for their intelligence, not for their elegance or anything like that. And the fact that they chose making those kids that Pinocchio goes to when he goes to Pleasure Island and stuff like that, making them into donkeys 
making them quote unquote jackasses to me it makes it pretty clear because no one making that story regardless of what the origins are no one making that would not understand the implications of that yeah Uh, that's a really clear dog whistle uh to like yeah these kids when you know, when you don't want to deal with them anymore because they're just too unruly and you don't want to be a good fucking parent and you don't want to try to help your child, they're going to go off to these awful, toxic, abusive schools or these awful, toxic, abusive groups that will take your children and they'll just turn them out to be laborers, a labor class that will only be good for doing labor jobs without actually ever being able to advance in society because they never learned the ability to be social enough because they never learned that there are people out there that will treat you well so they don't treat other people well and that perpetuates their alienation from society and just all of that junk so yeah sorry I took it to a dark place even though I was laughing that's okay (laughs) so I was going to a dark place but like classes you know classism is prevalent throughout literature and for those of you who aren't aware pinocchio the story of pinocchio was a book before it was a movie before it was you know the animated cartoon that we all know and love before it was geppetto the musical that i just talked about it was originally called the adventures of pinocchio but it's also widely referenced as just pinocchio because that's what everyone knows it as now it's a novel for children by Italian author Carlo Collodi. And I mean, it's the same story, but it was written It was written in 1883. So around the same time that all this other shit was being done takes place in the same, you know, we're dealing with the same stuff. It's all classism Truly, yeah, and all sure. like, I'm not going to say all, but most literature deals with the idea of classism. In this, in this era, in that age, because like we were saying earlier the victorian era was very focused on classism was very focused on especially highlighting poverty in the class of society and how children who were viewed as being the purest form of humanity the purest best form of humanity were being brutalized and abused by poverty so like highlight the fact that like oh you live in a society that is based on classism well how do you excuse treating children like this this is the experience of children and you guys say in this society that children are the best forms of humans so how do you treat them like this if you're treating them like this there's something wrong you need to change it that was like kind of the whole point of that movement yes victorian society was all about it but i would say i would argue that even now even famous literature right now is about classism like absolutely hunger games is 100 percent about classism like the capital the capital is the hoity-toity rich folks and we're back we are 100 percent back in a classist uh focused yeah uh art movement because of the fact that harry potter the children of blood and bone like i could just go on forever and list just all of these different stories that are all based on this classist structure where Mm -hmm. the poor people at the bottom are just expected to do 
only the manual labor. Yeah. You have to do this. You have to do that because that's your place in life and everyone else gets to benefit from it. It's capitalist society, just like America. So you're welcome. As a reminder, if you didn't remember several episodes ago when we were talking about it, uh, here we are, Katie and Sam in America, in case it was not clear to you before and you don't live in America. We are Americans. Help us, please. (laughs) Somebody, anybody, come and save us. Come and help America in any way, shape, or form that you can. We're not okay. (laughs) It's a a problem. It's not good. Things will absolutely be changing soon. Um, Everyone who has any sort of brain (laughs) in their heads knows and can see it and has been talking about it just because of the nature of human society. Thinking about looking back at like things like the Victorian area and things like that, whenever we reach these sort of points in history and these points in human civilization where the classist issues are so severe that tensions are so high like they are right now, problems are so big and they're so extreme. And so the extremities of the consequences of every action of both the common people and the governing bodies resulting in extreme consequences for everyone involved. It's at a breaking point. Who knows what's going to happen, but I would love for it to be a positive change. So hence why I said we are in America. If you are not in America, help us try and make the change positive because we are at a breaking point. Enjoy watching this shit show from the outside. (laughs) (laughs) We really need help. We are, we are trying people like me, people like Katie and our husbands (laughs) respectively and the people that we know, you know, I like to think that me and Katie, you know, surround ourselves with people that are of like mind in the sense that we want the best for humanity and we want society to be a place where everyone feels loved and everyone, you know, is taken care of and everyone isn't worried that they're going to die just because they don't have enough money or something, you know, to be able to afford basic health care or things like that. We are those type of people. And that's the majority of the people in America, regardless of what it looks like from the outside. So hopefully the lower classes, unfortunately, we are lower, but hopefully in this crazy transition period of our country, we come out being able to push and make the changes necessary to continue progressing forward rather than regressing backwards. But that is only going to happen if, first of all, A, people like me and Katie and everyone else who is in America right now, just like us listening, you're not alone, we're here, and your opinion does matter, your station does matter, the things that you do and the things that you say and your vote and your words and how you stand up to, you know, authority figures, it does matter, even if it feels like it doesn't, every voice counts, first of all, but also second of all, the people that are outside of America, we don't deserve allies at this point, unfortunately, our government has been really awful to many everyone to everyone but that is our government that is not the majority of our people we hear you we know the problems 
please don't abandon us. <laughs> Help us in some way, in some way, shape, or form. We are here and we're waiting, basically. Yeah. Uh, for the FBI agent that just tuned in, because Katie and I both just got put on an extra terrorist watch list or whatever. Oh, my FBI agent knows. <laughs> Uh, uh, you're welcome and sorry that you had to listen to uh, me talk to you about the princess and the pea because like that was just a waste of your life and I'm not even gonna like hide that fact so <laughs> but I'm also glad that you know about Geppetto so like tell your family that Geppetto exists because you FBI agent I'm sure has a child or two and like Geppetto would be great your child would probably love it yep you'd like it too <laughs> All right, seven word synopsis. Oh shit! For both of these stories, every week. Okay. 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 You think about it. I've got mine ready to go. Okay, you go. Okay, for the short stories of Hans Christian Andersen, Queen was a bitch. Emperor was idiot. (laughs) That's perfect. That gets it across, like for sure, for sure. Yeah. So of course. The princess and the pea that queen was a bitch like even if she wasn't a princess like who gives a fuck for sure <laughs> like right. she just exactly. needed a place to stay who cares <laughs> just let her sleep like you got a big ass castle like let her sleep. you don't need to be abusing her bruising her with your peas yeah uh, like <laughs> who gives a fuck you're so shady what <laughs> What sort of produce and fabrics? Damn it. I got to start over. I'm like one word short every time I end up eight in my head instead of seven. Get get rid of sort. What produce and fabrics? What produce and fabric y'all making there? (laughs) There you go. There you go. Right? What sort why of peas? Why are the peas so hard? Threads. <laughs> why is that shit as hard as a pebble? And why could she feel it on top of twenty layers? Like that doesn't make any what? fucking sense. Why is your thread expensive as fuck, but non-existent? <laughs> None of that shit makes sense. No. No. Okay. None Geppetto. Of it. Okay. Kids aren't great. Parenting makes them great. Aww. So, I mean, that's the fucking story of Geppetto. Like, he expected his kid to be great out the gate, and you have to parent right. your kids. You want your exactly. kid not to be a dick, you have to teach them how to not be a dick. Yeah, where do they learn social norms yeah. from the parents? That's literally my job, is to make sure that kids aren't assholes. So, like... Right. Nature matters, but nurture is very important. There you go. There you go. Seven word synopsis. Very nice. okay so my kalua hot chocolate is not hot anymore well it's not (laughs) it's not hot anymore but i am drunk so for sure for sure uh which means that we have reached the end of real lit thank you guys so much for listening yes Thank you so much, Susan Dorda, for making our beautiful artwork. We love you so much. You can find her work at www.susandorta.com, S-U-S-A-N-D-O-R-T-A.com. If you want to engage with us, you got to talk to Allentown Presents, and Katie's going to give you all those connects. You can tweet us at Allentown Pod. You can email us at allentownpresents at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook at Allentown Presents.
Woo woo. Make sure that you note in your messages wherever you talk to us that you're talking to them about Real Lit. Yeah, we've and got a lot of shows. One of the other wonderful shows that Allentown Presents also makes. We've got also, a lot of make shows. sure. Yeah. Also make sure that when you are doing that stuff that you check out some of the other awesome shows that Allentown Presents produces in their wonderful network. And we love you guys very much. And tell your friends, tell your friends, get drunk. And as always, it's been real and it's been lit. Keep it lit. Real lit. Oh, shit.